0: Japan, I'm Frank Ling.
1: And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee.
0: And you're listening to the Grok Science Show.
1: That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's
0: show, elements and dogs.
1: In addition, we'll be joined by Daniel Hudon, who will talk about the Bluffer's Guide to the Cosmos.
0: So, stay tuned for all this,
1: plus the Grokatron 5000,
0: and the world-famous question of the week,
1: coming right up, here, on the Grox Science Show.
0: program I'm Frank Lane
1: and I guess that makes me Charles Lee how are you doing Frank
0: kind of old actually
1: it feels like we've been doing this show forever
0: yeah exactly nine years in fact
1: who knew nine years could feel like forever but spending that time with you has been the best time of my life Frank
0: <laughs> hey thanks Charles It's lasted longer than I don't know what could last that long these <laughs> days it's really
1: not marriages
0: <laughs> hey I, have, I still have my Atari 2600
1: I'm gonna ask if you want to trade games or something
0: <laughs> what you got the Nintendo
1: No, I've got, like, I've got Yars' Revenge for the
0: 2600. Whoa. Okay, so you've been keeping all these years.
1: (laughs) It is our nine-year anniversary. Uh, It's nine years since we started doing this program. Hey,
0: congratulations, uh, Charles.
1: Congratulations, Frank. Hopefully, nine more years to come.
0: Hey, then I'll be an adult, almost legally, in fact.
1: (laughs) Well, it's it's very cool, and uh, I guess looking back on nine years' worth of shows, it's been uh, certainly an adventure. We've had a lot of fun and interesting guests and a lot of fun and interesting
0: mail. Closer to hate meal actually. We got a review of last week's episode, but it seems kind of random. If you have something to say, just email us. We can be constructive. Uh, you, know, you don't have to hide yourself out there. Or if you're just angry, let us know. But don't take it out on our guests.
1: Well, you know, it's when they stop writing that you have to be worried.
0: <laughs> but no publicity is really, really bad publicity. Either, that's right. right.
1: At, least, at least somebody's listening and hates our show. So that's a plus. What
0: other milestones are there? I think we're done. We can, we can call it quits now. I guess so, but for some reason, chemistry lives on. Does it really? Yes, they created the heaviest element.
1: I, I thought they'd stopped at Unicodium.
0: Well, whatever it was named temporarily, it's uh, now called Copernicium, named after Nicholas Copernicus. This is officially the name for element 112, and it uh, was a name that was suggested by a Sigurd Hoffman at the GSI Helmholtz Zentrum in Germany.
1: So why not call it Hemholtzenium?
0: (laughs) So the interesting thing is the symbol for this is CN, Mm -hmm. not CP as one might expect, mostly because they do not want to confuse the symbol for heat capacity, which is also CP. And there's also CP violation.
1: Yes. So the CP (laughs) nomenclature was clearly very crowded at this point. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yes. So right. On the internet, of course, CN also stands for China, but.
1: <laughs> well, it just means that this will be one of the most censored elements in history.
0: Ah, uh, who knows? They have their own team somewhere. This is really cool stuff. Report it at the IUPAC website. Alright,
1: so, Frank, uh, do you like dogs?
0: Yeah, most of the time, unless they start eating (laughs) your sugar.
1: That's a major problem you have as dogs coming up and eating your sugar?
0: There's a dog where I was living and he would come into the kitchen, trash the sugar and uh, start eating it.
1: (laughs) He was just lonely. He wanted some company. In any case, this is interesting because uh, researchers have now found that all small dogs may have their origins in the Middle East.
0: Saudi Arabia, Egypt area.
1: So the origin of the domestic dog is a very hotly debated topic in evolutionary biology. And Mm -hmm. most scientists agree that dogs came from the domestication of the gray wolf, but they really don't know where this took place.
0: Hmm, so dogs evolved from human domestication of wolves thousands of thousands of years ago?
1: Yes, uh, 5,000 to 16,000 years ago.
0: And And from that, we got the German Shepherd and the Chihuahua.
1: It's amazing how that can all come from the gray wolf.
0: I I don't get it.
1: Well, uh, neither do a lot of evolutionary biologists, and that's been the question. Team found that very small dogs all carry similar copies for a gene called insulin-like growth factor 1, associated with gray wolves from the Middle East. Okay. So it just suggests Hmm. that the small dogs that you find actually were domesticated in the Middle East, and perhaps the other dogs may have evolved shortly after that.
0: But this was done under human influence.
1: Yes, no, it was done under human influence, not aliens.
0: (laughs) Okay, so I I guess History of Man and Dog has quite a bit of time to it then.
1: So, uh, very fascinating work, and in case you ever wondered where the uh, small dogs come from, they come from the Middle East. And uh, this was very fascinating work, it was published in a recent edition of BMC Biology.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Is it published in the Middle East?
1: (laughs) Maybe, Maybe it's the Middle East version of PNAS. Okay. Uh, and that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. This is the Grox Science Show. Coming up in just a few minutes, uh, Daniel Hudon will join us to discuss The Bluffer's Guide to the Cosmos. So stay tuned. Welcome back to the Grok's Science Show. Well, the universe is big, really big, and sometimes trying to keep up with all of the remarkable features of the universe can be exceedingly difficult, but distilling all of these findings of cosmology into simple terms may be easier than one might think. Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Dr. Daniel Hudon. Dr. Hudon is a natural sciences lecturer at Boston University, author of numerous scientific and popular articles on the subject. His new book, The Bluffer's Guide to the Cosmos, explores the vastness of space for a general audience. Uh, Dr. Hudon, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show.
2: Oh, thanks very much for having me.
1: A really very fascinating book, The Bluffer's Guide to the Cosmos. Why should we care about the cosmos?
2: Why should we care? It's because um, the cosmos blows our minds. you got the Big Bang, you got black holes, you got stars that, that ultimately are where we came from. And so the cosmos is our ultimate heritage.
1: And, and do you think it's a little bit daunting for uh, people to learn about uh, all the things that are in the cosmos?
2: Well, I think what, what really holds them back is, is the, the jargon that, that scientists are so free to use. And so that's one thing that we're careful in the book is, is to tip people off on, on the jargon so that uh, they can sort of be let in on the game as it were.
1: Uh-huh. Uh, the book, of course, uh, tries to go through all this in very simple terms. Is it possible to explain the universe in simple terms?
2: Well, I just wrote a, an article on black holes for a 13-year-old, so I, I, think, I think it totally is.
1: Well, okay. What, what do you think are some of the most important features about the cosmos that people should know about?
2: Well, I think the, the basic thing is that the cosmos is understandable. People think that, that the Big Bang is beyond them, but when they think about the, the different types of evidence that we have, they can see that the, what, why cosmologists take it as a, as a very serious and, and strong theory.
1: Perhaps we ought to start at the beginning uh, regarding the cosmos. How did the, the universe actually begin?
2: Well, we have about 13.7 billion years ago, give or take maybe some fraction of a million years. We, we know the age of the universe quite well. Space and time came into existence with, with what we call the Big Bang. And so from there, the entire universe expanded and, and cooled. When it was cool enough, galaxies started forming, and stars began to form out of uh, these cosmic background fluctuations. And the, the presence of these fluctuations are excellent evidence for, for the Big Bang. And as the, temp- the cosmic temperature cooled, then stars and galaxies were able to form. And then we have about 4.5 billion years ago, we have formation of our solar system
1: and all that in such a short period of time. How do we know all this?
2: You know, scientists are actually quite competitive, and so if someone says something, someone else goes out right away to, to try to check it and see if they are right. <laughs> this is the 400th anniversary of uh, Galileo's first use of the telescope for astronomical purposes. The telescope has been the main workhorse for observation of the night sky, and so nearby things you see pretty much as, as they are sort of now, but as you look to deeper and deeper in the universe, you see, you see things when they're younger. And so you can get a picture of how things change with time in the universe.
1: Looking back in time, the further out you go. That's right. Do you think uh, after reading your book, most people will be able to bluff their way through talking about the cosmos?
2: it's really aimed as almost like a party game you know you, you read a couple of pages and then you you think you read the section on black holes or something like that and you just come up to up to speed on the terms like event horizon and singularity and and you just you know you just toss them out at 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 a cocktail party and so yeah i think it's possible just to to, to sound a little bit smarter than than you, than you may have been before before reading those pages
1: well you have a lot of very interesting trivia questions like uh, for example how far away is space
2: well space is only an hour away by car if your car can drive straight upwards
1: so pretty close then.
2: It's pretty darn close. That's right. <laughs>
1: Pile the kids in and uh, get going.
2: <laughs> That's right. That's right. It's, it's closer than you think. <laughs> you know, I've been, I've been teaching at Boston University for the last several years now. So we're, we're trying to, when we teach our courses, we, we want to get people to understand how we know what we know. And we don't, we don't just go for the, the top ten hits, as it were. So I have, a, I have trouble thinking of, you know, what's, what's hot at the moment at, at any given time. But for the last 10, 11, 12 years, now we've been discovering planets around other stars. And with the launch of the Kepler satellite, we're, we're within months or a year or two, uh, I think, of, of discovering Earth-sized planets. Uh, so I think that's we're really at, at an amazing time in our history.
1: Well, well the big thing uh, regarding planets in our own solar system was, of course, Pluto being demoted to a dwarf planet. What was the rationale behind that?
2: Well kind of out there in this great big belt of objects called, that are also known as Kuiper belt objects, and so as other objects in that belt came to be discovered, some of them were found to be larger than Pluto, and so Pluto kind of was seen, began to be seen as a, as a run-of-the-mill object out in this large belt, and so why should it still hold its status as a planet when it was really behaving like a great big ice ball in, in this larger belt of other ice balls?
1: Size that mattered.
2: Well, the size and and then its character. In the book, we joke that that Pluto did keep his room clean. Other planets have pretty much swept, they have enough mass to sweep the space around them free of other debris, even though there are some objects that cross their paths. But Pluto's kind of out there in in the middle of this great big belt of, of other objects, and it just happened to be discovered in 1949 or so when people were excited about finding a ninth or tenth planet.
1: Uh, do you find people are more fascinated by the more exotic elements of Cosmos, for example, black holes and quasars and dark matter?
2: Oh, always. I gave a talk to some grade eights not too long ago and, and black holes, all the questions were about black holes. So, so they're, they're the, the collapsed star children, as we say, of, of, of astronomy.
1: <laughs> now, what is it you think most people should know about black holes and uh, how they form and what they do?
2: Well, they're not giant vacuum cleaners that go around sucking up everything in their way. (laughs) That's one one point I also wanted to make. I had to fight with the editor to, to, to keep that out of the book. The most important thing is that massive stars that are much more massive than the sun could become black holes. If your star is about 10 or 15 times more massive than the sun is, then it could collapse and become a black hole. And it would be difficult to find this black hole because if it's by itself, space is so curved that even its light cannot escape from it. And so we rely on hoping to find them in in double star systems where one is orbiting around another and maybe there's material that's falling into the black hole and heated up to such enormous energies that it radiates x-rays.
1: What about this so-called dark matter? What's the evidence for it and what's it going to do to the universe?
2: There's dark matter and then there's this other thing that was discovered about 10 years ago or so called dark energy. And I make the joke in the book that every time I refer to dark energy, I call it the mysterious dark energy because we have no idea what it is. And so every reference for dark energy always is pre- preceded by the word mysterious. Dark matter, is, it could be run-of-the-mill stuff, it could be faded stars, and could be small failed planets, but dark energy could have something to do with the, the very fabric of space itself. Distant galaxies seem to be receding away from us faster than they should be, so the expansion of the universe is actually accelerating, and so what could possibly be driving this acceleration? We're calling it this mysterious dark energy, but uh have some ideas about it, but still would like to know much more about it.
1: Mm. Sort of brings up the, the general question of what is the ultimate fate of the universe, right?
2: Indeed. So if dark energy is driving it, then we're, we are going to expand and expand in, until who knows when. And then that'll be it. That'll be a, it'll be a cold, dark place.
1: <laughs> Do you try and take a specific type of approach when explaining complicated subjects to general audiences?
2: Well, one thing that was fun with the book was, was to joke about it all and coach the reader along with these little jokes to say, you know, you know, you can understand some of this if we just, this term in this place and, and that term in that place. And, and it, by the way, here's a fun fact for you to, to slip under your, under your hat there. And so just try to encourage the reader that was understandable and let them in on a few inside jokes to keep them reading along.
1: Mm. Well, one of the nice analogies that you use is relating planet size to sizes of fruits.
2: Great. But, uh, if the Earth is, is about the size of an apple, then Neptune and Uranus are melons, and Jupiter would be a, a prize winning Halloween pumpkin.
1: <laughs> what uh, color is the universe?
2: Oh, uh, yes, the color of the universe. Uh, someone actually, actually added up the light of a whole bunch of galaxies and found that the universe was actually sort of a beige, or in their paper, they described it as, as cosmic latte colored.
1: <laughs> so it kind of goes well with anything.
2: Kind of goes well with anything, that's right. An everyday universe.
1: And are there certain types of stars that are hotter than others?
2: There are stars that are hotter than others. The more, much more massive ones are also much hotter. And these are the blue stars. And the stars that are less massive than the sun are, appear red in color. And they're cooler than the sun. Basically, your bathroom taps are mislabeled. We always have uh, red as hot and blue as cold, but it should be the other way around. Blue is hot, yeah.
1: How long would it take travel across the uh, Milky Way galaxy? If
2: you travel traveling light speed, it would take you something like hundred thousand years to go from one end of the Milky Way to the other.
1: Hmm.
2: If you're a fan of, of World Cup soccer you would miss something like 25,000 <laughs> World Cup games.
1: So pack a couple lunches then?
2: You get, you're gonna need a few lunches, that's right. <laughs>
1: um, I think a question that probably most people are interested in is the possibility of life on other planets. What's the status of uh, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence?
2: We are looking. The, the search is confined mostly to finding Earth-like planets and the score in 1996 or so was zero planets beyond our solar system and now it's at something like 350 or so and like i said earlier we, we don't have any earth-like planets just yet but we expect that announcement within the within the next couple of years and it's going to be difficult to get a signal from one of these other earth-like planets but knowing that, that they're there will at least give us confidence that there's also possibility of life on these planets hmm.
1: How do you think people's interest in the cosmos has changed in recent times? Do you think people are more interested in the cosmos of late?
2: Well, I, you know, I used to work uh, at the Hubble Space Telescope at the Science Institute in Baltimore. And I think the Hubble has just done so much by beaming down these amazing pictures in such regular fashion. I think people have been able to just to have a chance to, to look at the universe and see it for themselves and download it onto their, onto their laptops and their, and their desktops and look at these fantastic pictures of these amazing gas clouds and, and galaxies and whatnot. So I think interest is, is much higher than it used to be only uh, a few years ago. Hmm.
1: Do you think there's still a lot of interest in government to continue the funding of these types of projects?
2: Well, one, one can only hope. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Maybe to wrap up, how did you yourself become interested in Cosmos and writing this book?
2: I was always interested in astronomy from the time I was a kid, and then when I went to university, I, I didn't really know what major in, and I just decided I didn't really know what an astronomer did for that matter. But when I had to declare my major, I decided uh, just to go for it. So to, did the bachelor's degree, and then ultimately went on and did the master's and PhD as well. Writing came upon much more recently, and I think it's, it's partly just wanted to share what I've learned.
1: And do you have any recommendations for getting more information uh, about the universe?
2: Well, if they're interested in looking at the night sky, it's best to start with a pair of binoculars rather than a, than, than a telescope, because a, a beginner's telescope can be hard to use. So everyday binoculars is a good way just to start familiarizing themselves with the night sky. Otherwise, the public library, you know, I'm, I go there all the time and, and I see all kinds of great, great books that are quite accessible to, to you and me and the public for the latest astronomical discoveries.
1: Do you have uh, one final thing that you'd like people to know about the cosmos?
2: One of the factoids in the book is that there is at least one golf ball out there in in orbit around the Earth, fired by a Russian cosmonaut.
1: Do you know what brand it is?
2: Never did find out the brand, no.
1: (laughs) All right, well, the the new book is called The Bluffer's Guide to the Cosmos, and uh, Dr. Hudon, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thanks very much. And you were just listening to Daniel Hudon discussing the Bluffer's Guide to the Cosmos. This is the Grok Science Show. Coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned.
3: When you wish upon a star, makes no difference. is too extreme, when you wish upon a star as dreamers do, fate is kind, she lives to those who love, the sweet fulfillment of their secret love. old oh, out of the blue, fate steps in and sees you through, when you wish upon a star
1: Time to play the game, the Grokatron 5000. It is, of course, our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic cosmic or microscopic. So for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if you would rate them as cosmic or microscopic and maybe a little reason why. Uh, Dr. Hudon, are you ready to play the game? Okay, yep, ready. All right, here we go. Uh, Person number one, cosmic or microscopic, talk show host Jerry Springer.
2: Oh my gosh! Microscopic. Just doesn't matter.
1: <laughs> uh, person number uh, two is the Fed Chairman Ben Bernanke.
2: He would have to be cosmic, just all kinds of trouble caused.
1: <laughs> uh, all right, number three is the uh, famed astrophysicist Stephen Hawking.
2: Stephen Hawking would be cosmic. Yeah, I think uh, you know the brief history of time was one of the best-selling science books in recent times. So,
1: turned a lot of people on to astronomy and physics. That's right. Uh, number four is the quarterback, Brett Favre. Cosmic for his cosmic ego. Okay. <laughs> uh, and finally, number five, it's the president of the United States, Barack Obama.
2: Oh, cosmic. For, for trying, for getting out there and trying all the time.
1: <laughs> all right. <laughs> Dr. Hudon, I want to thank you very much for uh, sticking around playing the game and, of course, talking about the book, The Bluffer's Guide to the Cosmos. Thank you very much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye and now it's time for this week's question of the week and joining us straight from Dagobah it's our good friend yoda yoda how are you doing
0: green i am but red in you are you Hmm. iron you have special it must be mm.
1: and why is it so special yoda
0: 112 elements there are but most stable of all iron it is
1: mm. wow what makes it so stable
0: mm. perfect combination of protons and neutrons Hmm. thus the magic stability of Iron. Hmm. Wow, awesome Yoda. <laughs> strong the iron is in you. <laughs>
1: and strong the force is in you, Yoda.
0: <laughs> and may it be with you, always. <laughs> and that's all for this week's edition of Grox Science.
1: Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology.
0: If you'd like to contact us here at Grox Science, you can email us at science at grox.net. For Grox Science, I'm Frank Lane.
1: And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grocks.net. We're also on Facebook. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.
0: Yoda today